Hey Space fans, it's Phil from SpexCast. Before we start this week's episode, I'd like to make a few corrections to our last episode. In our discussion of SpaceX reflight missions, the CRS-8 first stage will fly for SES-10 this March. Also, TJ said he went to the Discover launch, but he actually saw Jason-3. And TJ also made a comment about Electron saying the launch was in February. Electron's first flight will be in April, but it arrived at the launch pad in February. If you downloaded the episode when it first came out, you might have noticed an audio issue. This has since been fixed. It was a small editing mistake on my part for some last minute changes. I apologize. If you have any corrections or want to let us know of any mistakes you might find in our episodes, please let us know. Thank you. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host for the next hour alongside our good friends TJ. Hello. And Drew. How's it going? If you're just finding out about this podcast, thanks for listening. We're a group of students belonging to a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology called RIT Space Exploration, or SPECS for short. On this podcast, we talk space with amateurs to astronauts. You can learn more about Specs and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. We're also planning on covering news and current events in the space industry on a tighter recording schedule. Let us know what topics you would like us to discuss by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email at specscast at gmail.com. Today's topic is the design of spacecraft architectures. Science fiction is dominated by gigantic spaceships exploring the stars. However, real-life spacecraft appear to be made of smaller, discrete pieces. On the other hand, games like Kerbal Space Program present building rockets as simple as snapping together Lego pieces. How much is science and how much is fiction with regards to spacecraft design? Yeah, and as we as we go forward into the future with sleeker designs and more advanced technologies, it is blurring that edge between, you know, the pragmatic utilitarian approach and the cool-looking, really aesthetically pleasing spaceships as well. No one says a spacecraft has to be ugly, but we're still at the stage where technology limits us to a great extent on how a rocket can look, or any spacecraft for that matter. In sci-fi, ships tend to be pretty much propelled by magic compared to what we have today. There's always a cool factor involved. They tend to have infinite energy or some magical energy source that we don't have. Um, There don't seem to be very many physical limitations. So what is a cool spaceship? Open question. I mean, for me, cool spaceships are realistic looking spaceships. Um, I'm at one of the the very small minority where uh, spaceships that are accurate to physics and real real world physics is what uh, gets me excited. Um, Star Wars, sci-fi, whatever kind of ships are kind of, you know, there's that mountain of suspension of disbelief you have to get over uh, increases the more you kind of read about and learn about this kind of stuff. I'm knowingly in the minority. What about you, Phil? I can suspend my disbelief, but only so far. I appreciate the aesthetics of cooler stuff a little bit more than TJ maybe, but things like the spaceships you see in Avatar, um, I think are really cool where it looks like everything has a purpose and there's nothing, there are no frills. It doesn't appear to have anything that would not be needed. Even stuff that I don't 
know what it is. It looks like it's there for a purpose and not because it looks cool. Yeah, that chip in Avatar is also much more reminiscent of what we actually use as opposed to something like the Enterprise from Star Trek. Yeah, we've definitely seen a growth out from like the original flying saucer to, you know, spacecraft that at least have engines and things that look like crew compartments and fuel tanks and whatnot. Uh, But there's still a ton of variation in between those two extremes. Um, But one of the things I want to like talk about with, with sci-fi is that science fiction is how humans first envision themselves exploring the stars. Uh, Something that's really noticeable. That's one of kind of the first visions of how humans would explore space is uh, From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. This was written in 1865, so almost 100 years before the moon landing, and it is a novel about humans landing on the moon. Now, obviously, there's a ton of physical inaccuracies and whatnot, uh, but what's interesting is the spacecraft they use is a bullet-shaped capsule called Columbia. And actually, we see that name in the command module that took Apollo 11 to the moon was named Columbia. And obviously, the first space shuttle to fly was Columbia. So it had a huge influence on the people who actually did the engineering to put this into space. And disregarding the propulsion method, which is a giant space gun, which we could probably do a whole episode on the pros and cons of those. Uh, It was a monolithic craft that was launched in one piece went to the moon, landed on the moon, they got out, and then they went back to Earth in this one big craft. That seems to be common among sci-fi is they tend to be monolithic. I mean, they might be built on the planet or in space, but when they are assembled, they are one giant single piece. You see that in the Star Destroyers in in Star Wars. They are essentially one big starship. As As opposed to what, though? Large swarms of smaller ships? Well... We'll get into this, I think this is a perfect jumping off point, going into what real spaceships look like. Uh, Going back into more historical spacecraft, the Apollo uh, capsule, the Apollo spacecraft, named after Columbia, you know, was a ballistic capsule for reentry, but it was two parts, a crewed part and a service module. And what was interesting is that they launched the uh, command module and the lunar uh, excursion module all on the same rocket but when they got into space they actually separated flipped around and docked to be in a, a more advantage advantageous position and so even with these early spacefaring craft you had two distinct pieces that were designed they looked very different from each other forming the whole spaceship that went to the moon uh, and then going over into skylab which is a what's called a dry workshop uh, space station where they take basically a replacement for the third stage on the Saturn V that was converted into a space station and it was launched and that was a basically a single piece which is kind of opposite of how the ISS is and how the Russian uh, space stations were assembled. It, it comes down to the practicalities and the technologies and there's a lot of things that go into monolithic things. Yeah, so like... With Apollo versus Skylab, Skylab is kind of, you know, you build it on the ground, you launch it all in one piece, very similar to how a sci-fi spaceship would be assembled or or launched kind of in our imaginations, right? Where everything is together and things might deploy off of it and whatnot, but it's all kind of one big chunk. Uh, But with 
the first practical inter-body spacecraft with Apollo, you had those two distinct parts. Going to stuff that is kind of more modern, right, with the space shuttle, is the single largest uh, spacecraft we've launched in one piece with people on it. And so that is, you know, the space bus, the space truck, uh, and there's, we've kind of covered the pros and the cons of something like that. But that is a really big, very futuristic, especially at the time, kind of spacecraft. Right. So let's look at, let's actually dig into the math here and say, you know, why is it um, more difficult to launch one big mass at once versus uh, a smaller mass at a time, for example? The fundamental principle is Tsiolkovsky's rocket equation. So the amount of mass that you need in terms of fuel to get a payload mass to orbit or beyond, it doesn't increase linearly. So it doesn't mean that if you increase your payload mass by X, you will increase your fuel requirement by 2X. It's exponential. So if we were to, say, launch a tennis ball, we've taken some of these common items that you might all be familiar with, and a tennis ball weighs approximately 58 grams. The total mass of the fuel required to get something that heavy to space is 13 kilograms. There's a lot of assumptions there, but taking the general numbers for the efficiency of an engine and just to give us an idea of these comparisons. Exactly. So how much would something a little bit bigger like a a basketball size generic mass? Well, a basketball weighs roughly 625 grams, and that would be something more like 130 kilograms of fuel mass. Then if we step it up even bigger, say a bike, a bicycle, that's maybe 10 kilograms of mass. That would take over 2,000 kilograms of fuel. And then step it up even farther to something the size of a car, which is pretty big. That's 1,500 kilograms. That would take 309 metric tons of fuel to launch that to space. And again, uh, those assumptions are uh, a single-stage rocket, which we'll get into, uh, an engine at 350 ISP, low-Earth orbit, 8,000 meters per second delta V, and a structural coefficient applied to the payload mass. So obviously there's a ton of assumptions and not anywhere close to like real values, uh, but it shows the kind of that power of that logarithmic relationship where launching something small still takes a large amount of mass. If you try to launch something large and practical, you quickly balloon into this huge amount of fuel for launching something so small. Yeah, so how are some ways that rocket scientists have improved and optimized the way to get large masses into space? One of the big optimizations is what's called staging. And pretty much all orbital rockets uh, currently flying are built up of discrete parts. And so those are engines, fuel tank, and then a payload. And so when you look at the first stage of a Falcon 9 or a Delta IV, that has the fuel tanks and the engines to lift the payload, which is a whole second stage plus a potential third stage or a payload. And by doing that, uh, you decrease the ratio between your final mass and your initial mass. And that is what gets put into that logarithm. And so by kind of rebalancing that and splitting it up, uh, you can kind of stop yourself before you go up that exponential curve. Um, now, obviously, there's real-life engineering practicalities where having infinite stages, obviously, you know, that's impractical to build something like that. Um, but by using that, breaking into parts, you can actually reduce that huge amount of fuel because 
one way to think about it is when you're going into space, you're accelerating into orbit, you have to carry not only your payload, but all the fuel to get to that one point to then accelerate the next chunk of velocity, right? If you're doing the derivative. And so by shedding, being able to shed that dead weight behind you and letting that the fuel that's remaining just push the payload, you're able to dramatically increase that efficiency. That's something that people have actually written books on just staging alone. And you actually got one from the library <laughs> on this, TJ. But what I think is cool about this is that it's fairly intuitive once you start playing with it in something like Kerbal Space Program. It's something that you find out experimentally. And um, anyone who's played KSP, I'm, I'm sure is aware of this, um, whether they realize the math behind it or not. And so like this mathematical kind of forcing function, right, that is the rocket equation, means that it takes a huge amount of fuel mass and thus expensive rocket to bring a relatively small amount of payload up. And by increasing that final mass that you bring up in one launch, that means you have to have a dramatically bigger rocket. With Skylab, which was a 70 plus metric ton uh, space station, that had to be the third stage of the Saturn V rocket, and that was put into low Earth orbit. Obviously, it couldn't be sent to the moon. Otherwise, with the ISS, which is built in with small parts, over 40 rocket launches, has a total mass of 420 metric tons. And so, you know, you spread out that lift and you can kind of avoid those mathematical uh, forces against you. Yeah, so besides getting to orbit and transporting um, mass from the ground into a stable orbit in, in space, there are other challenges that kind of limit the form and architecture of spacecraft. And one of those is the radiation um, that the craft and humans aboard them would see in space, whether it be from cosmic rays or even things like the solar wind. How are some ways that current spacecraft get around this and maybe future spacecraft would protect people and spacecraft from radiation? There are several ways that a spacecraft can be designed to protect its cargo, namely the people, from the radiation in the space environment. The most basic way is to add more material between them and the radiation. Because the radiation, once it hits something, it tends to transfer its energy there. So it won't necessarily go through a thicker material and then hit the vulnerable people on the inside. So we do this depending on the type of material, the density of that material is the main factor, and then how much of that you can use. So there's always a desire to find a material that can be radiation resistant without adding too much mass to the the spacecraft. And a good uh, material is actually water. Yeah, so for deep space missions, it's been suggested to shield the, the craft in water because the water will absorb the radiation and it can be filtered and reused. And it's necessary on these long voyages where you don't have access to water, at least for manned space missions. Yeah, it's, it's actually a clever trick where... If you're going to Mars or even beyond, you have to bring water with you because we don't currently have a 100% efficient recycling system. And so you're bringing along this consumable, but before it's consumed, you can use it in place of a radiation shield. So instead of bringing, you know, steel or lead or some other dense metal to block the radiation, you can use something that is at least useful for the occupants. Material considerations aren't only the radiation protection, but 
also reducing the mass while maintaining the strength so that the fuel cost is lower and the cost of each launch is reduced. So stronger materials that are lighter are always being developed for many applications, but space being one of the driving factors. So uh, another uh, risk or design consideration that seems to be overlooked a lot by sci-fi is uh, the thermal regulation and and power regulation of spacecraft. Um, When the electronics run, they actually dissipate heat. And when you're in space, obviously you're in sunlight for part or all of the time. And so you're getting heated up by the sun that way. But to get rid of the heat in space, there's no wind to kind of carry the heat away. And you're not touching anything. You're isolated from pretty much everything else. So there's no conduction. So the only way to get rid of heat is through radiation. On some satellites and on the ISS, they have these big radiators. Yeah, one of the biggest things for radiation in terms of how quickly it will transfer that thermal energy is surface area. That's the the number one uh, factor. Another thing is, you know, looking at sci-fi ships like a Star Destroyer or a Borg Cube, these really cool imposing shapes. Obviously, you know, rule of cool. If you look at the ISS and you have, you know, these small modules together with huge solar panels and then huge radiators. Uh, part of that is you have this incoming energy either from the, uh, the sun, but you also have internally generated energy as Phil mentioned, and you have to radiate out that through radiators. And another in interesting kind of mathematical law is that square cube law. Basically, I'm saying, you know, with a large boxy shape, you have a lot of internal volume that, you know, if you fill it with people or electronics or machinery is all generating heat and you have very limited surface area on the outside to radiate that heat away. There's no other way to get it. And so spacecraft want to kind of maximize that surface area and they do that with these long flat radiators that have cooling tubes and usually a working fluid that go all through the ship taking that heat out of internal places, bringing it outside to that large surface area radiator. Do you think they built the Star Destroyer in space? Technically, yeah, they do. the Death Star is in space assembly, if you think about it. But you can also see that the the Star Destroyers, the big pointy Vs, or triangles rather, they can apparently go into planet atmosphere now. That's because they have infinite energy sources that let them just float. I wish we had infinite energy sources. (laughs) Me too. I know, it would be so nice. Since we don't, we have to do in-space assembly for bigger things like the ISS, right? And the modules connect together through special docking adapters. Yeah, so with in-space assembly, uh, you know, disregarding the cost that it takes to put mass to orbit and the fact that each of those units of material have to be, you know, kind of compact to fit on the rockets we have, once you get into space, you don't have a assembly line or common welding tools to put everything together. Um, There's actually a few common ways that the ISS was put together, uh, one of them being the common berthing mechanism, which is a a port that when two models are brought together, they can then be bolted and forming an airtight seal that is a structural connection. Um, And that lets distinct modules that have these adapters be kind of put together Almost like Legos. Obviously, the connections between all of these are super thoroughly engineered because you're putting stresses on this uh, this port. It's not as simple as putting these things together. And obviously, the ISS has to be very carefully engineered when you where you put these, how much they weigh, and whatnot. Then for smaller spaceships, uh, we have the new International Docking Adapter, 
which lets spaceships temporarily dock with the ISS or other uh, craft. It's robotic, so like it's got these fins and they're connected to pneumatic pistons and one of the one side's active, one side's passive, and so you have to match all six fins together and that guides the probe in and that actually lets it lock. And so because they're pneumatic, you actually have a computer and a camera that will look at the other side that's passive and then pneumatically move these fins to match up even if the docking port's like misaligned or moving. And then once they're like in position, it'll slide together and like slot itself in and actually lock it. It's pretty awesome. That's pretty sweet. Docking ports, man. <laughs> yeah, so building things in space, you can bring stuff up there and dock them together. But 3D printing is a pretty, pretty hot trend right now. They've got 3D printed parts, uh, experimental parts on the ISS and... One of the cornerstones of some Mars colonization architectures I've seen is they, they rely on the ability to 3D print complex parts on site, right? So that's another way of um, assembling something in space. Ideally, you could have a whole manufacturing uh, assembly line in space. You just send up the raw materials or bring them there from other places. Right now, there's nothing really going on in that regard, but it's possible, right? Well... There's nothing going on in that regard in terms of habitation or most most things that are built are still subtractive manufacturing, but additive manufacturing and 3D printing are being looked into by NASA right now for their engines because if you can 3D print something, you can make it as a solid piece with complex internal geometry and while it may not necessarily be as strong, it can be robust enough to fulfill the objective that you'd normally build an engine in multiple pieces for. I mean, for sure. On, on the ground, for sure, there are already demonstrated technologies for 3D printed parts. But I mean, like manufacturing the entire part in space and assembling it in space as well. Yeah, one of the issues we have with 3D printing in space is we don't have any large like format printers, right? Where, you know, they have less precise but large format printers that can print 20, 30 feet and print concrete and build houses and things like that. So if like if you want to build useful structures in space with a 3D printer, you're going to need a, a large print area, which requires, you know, either a controlled environment or you need to do it in vacuum, in zero G, which has never been done before. I thought it was really interesting, you know, talking about uh, in space assembly line and like that's a really interesting goal to have. And I think that would actually like make a lot of the stuff that we see in sci-fi more more reasonable and more likely, uh, but we just don't have that, right? Everything has to be pre-built on the ground to be super light and super compact and survive a rocket launch and then be, at best, put together with these kind of ungainly adapters to form an actual like finished product. I don't think it's too far away, though. I think that's the, the next major breakthrough in terms of space technology. Yeah, being able to build, especially print in space, is, I think, in the not-too-distant future, and I think it'll be really cool, especially because additive manufacturing is in my focus. Uh, but I just did want to say that there is a 3D printer on the International Space Station, and right now I believe they've already returned parts that have been printed, and they're being analyzed to determine whether or not there's a difference between what's printed in space versus what's printed with an identical machine in gravity. Right. So we'll see, we'll see how the manufacturing process goes from here. Speaking of gravity, um, if you've watched any sci-fi ever, 
people walk around on the ground of their spaceships and they're in space and part of that is because they film it on the earth but the other part is that there's this implied artificial gravity for spaceships what's the deal with artificial gravity magnetic boots magnetic boots do not work as well as advertised also not on aluminum they just i mean results may vary (laughs) uh so tj what about artificial gravity on real so things that have actually been designed with artificial gravity in mind yeah, so uh, currently nothing's been designed with artificial gravity in mind. Um, all of our previous spaceships have been, you know, designed for people to work in zero G. But what sort of concepts have actually been put forward that aren't just in a movie? All the ones in the movie are the, the best ones. Uh, but basically, with something like with Star Wars, you got your sci-fi like repulsor things in the floor that create gravity. Um, but in real life. The without some magical change in the, our understanding of physics, we can't pull that off. What we can do is uh, create artificial gravity through centripetal force. So the basic concept is that if you have a rotating object and a person is aligned with the axis of rotation um, and they're moving at a fast enough rate, they will experience centripetal force normal to their body so the same direction we experience gravity and that would for all intents and purposes uh feel like the force of gravity if that rotation is maintained um and there's conservation of of angular momentum once you set a spacecraft in motion um it'll remain in motion uh despite some losses right and so what you would do is you either have the entire spaceship rotate, um, but then you run into uh, certain effects. There's a Coriolis effect, which is what causes weather patterns on Earth. Uh, with the Earth rotating so large, different fluids are moving at different speeds. Uh, that is heavily exacerbated if you're on a very small radius that is rotating, where different parts of your body are rotating at different speeds, uh, which can lead quite poorly uh, to how you feel uh, and can make you sick and it's it's not tolerable. So you need is a, a radius that is large enough that the uh, fractional increase in the perceived force of gravity between your feet and your head is small enough that you do not significantly notice it. And that's really hard to do in one monolithic spaceship because it has to be quite large. It has to be the diameter is twice that minimum radius and it all has to be rotating um so a much easier thing is to do two distinct objects a spacecraft and another mass another spacecraft or fuel tanks or whatever and have a tether and that way you can have a quite long radius and as long as you have a strong enough tether that can uh, maintain that centripetal force you can set both of those rotating and that way you are in a simulated large radius of rotation. And these are actually like, this has been a, a known effect that NASA has been trying to investigate for a long time. Uh, one of the Gemini missions, they had a tether test where they tried to use a target vehicle and would try to rotate and simulate gravity. Uh, and they weren't going very fast and their tether link wasn't very long, but they were actually able to measure an appreciable simulated gravity uh, vector. Um, which proves that physical concept can actually work in space. 
All right, so for the most part, we've been talking about the sci-fi and then how these are considered in real terms, what we've actually engineered and what are currently being worked on. But what is the path forward? Well, we have an infinite number of paths forward uh, that we can imagine the future to be. But scaling those in, there are two reference missions that we'll look into. Um, Kind of the NASA Mars reference mission architecture that has been evolving since Constellation and now SLS. Uh, And then the SpaceX International the SpaceX Interplanetary Transport System, because that's a very different architecture. With the NASA reference mission, you have lots of different parts and different independent spacecraft coming together to go to Mars. So you have a orbital vehicle, which is Orion, that gets your humans from Earth into space. You then have a habitat, a space habitat, so a lightweight structure that gives you enough living space and also holds your food and supplies for humans to live uh, that you launch. And then you launch your propulsion module, which actually has the fuel and engines to get everything on this big stack to Mars on that uh, trans-Martian injection. And then you also have another lander vehicle, something that has enough fuel to, once it's in Mars orbit, land on Mars, either refuel or carry all the fuel it needs to come back up. Uh, and then redock with the space habitat propulsion module, and then the whole thing comes back. So this is a lot like what we saw in The Martian. Yes. Uh, the Martian is a little bit more robust in that their big spacecraft is really, really big. It's got like that artificial gravity ring, um, and it's designed for multiple missions. The NASA reference mission is, like you said, it does use Orion. It's kind of more practical and it, it isn't really sci-fi it's nasa <laughs> it's 20 years away and those are in quotes for the past 50 years all right so this is a bunch of different components that each ship has its own function each stage of the journey what about the spacex its yeah with the spacex its you have two components that are reused you have a gigantic uh booster rocket that launches a second stage but also spacecraft into orbit. Then that booster is landed and reused, refilled, and then launches a tanker variant of that spacecraft, which is all fuel tank, until you refuel that orbiting spacecraft. So you have this monolithic uh, vessel in orbit that has your propulsion system. It has all your crew compartment for everyone to live and sleep. It's got all the food for people to live uh, live off of, water, etc., and then when it's the tanks are refueled, that entire spaceship goes to Mars. It then enters Mars' atmosphere, lands, the entire vessel lands. They refuel on Mars. And then that whole vessel launches again and heads directly back to Earth. One thing I like about um, the ITS thing is it kind of sidesteps the staging issue, right? So you only have two pieces. You have the, the booster and the spaceship but then instead of launching all your fuel right off the bat they do in space refueling i always thought that was kind of cool yeah they they obviously they use staging but they also use that in situ resource utilization that refueling on mars which is another huge optimization which makes the whole thing 
actually practical. But both of those technologies are things that haven't really been done and that will require a lot of research and development. Um, whereas the NASA reference mission, I see a lot of the components already existing, except for maybe None the space exist. habitat. I mean, None of them exist except for Orion. I feel like it could be built together out of more practical components with less R&D than in space refueling in-situ resource utilization. See, the NASA reference mission, like, if they had done it in 2005, we'd already be done. Because you have Orion, then you need to develop your propulsion stage, which you can use the cryogenic tanks that are on Delta IV or something like that. But then you need a different arrangement of engines, so you're going to redesign that. So you have a lot of engineering items, like you have to completely design a new propulsion module, and then we've seen with SLS, redesigning their upper stage has caused a lot of delays. Then you have to purpose-build a habitat for people to live in. So you either use a Bigelow module, which would be awesome, or you build a tin can module like ISS. So those are two big engineering contracts that are on the scale of Orion. Then you have to build a separate lander because you can't use Orion to land and then get back onto the spacecraft. So you have to build a whole another lander and it can't be as flimsy as the, the lunar lander because it has like actual atmosphere to deal with. And then most of these missions were using a direct, basically a direct ascent where you're landing on Mars with all the fuel you need to take off from. So that means that thing has to be really, really big, right? Because Mars has one-third Earth gravity, but that's still a ton of delta V uh, and gravity loss. So it's uh, so many engineering. And I guess that includes with more, the more modules you have, the more, um, you know, each one would probably be built like Orion. Like it was independently, maybe con like contract work and everything and points of failure, points of delays, and they all just compound on, on top of each other instead of a monolithic thing, which is a lot more complicated on the front end, but potentially more robust down the road. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. So, like, you have, what, four or five different, like, engineering contracts that NASA has to put out and have people work on and then, like, deliver on all, like, roughly at the same time. Now, they do use, this is based off Constellation, they use the Ares 5, for all of these, except for Orion. Orion was launching on the Ares 1. And that caused a whole shitload of problems. <laughs> where the, they, they tested it once and it almost blew up the pad. Um, that was good. Good times. Um, but like they're using one rocket. And that's what SLS like wants to be. Because it is an evolution of Ares 5. Um, they all look almost identical. They're not the same. But they're close. Um because you need to bring up that huge amount of fuel because you have to send your orbital module, which is does nothing until the very beginning or the very end. So that's dead weight the entire time. You have to send the entire crew habitat, which just stays in uh, orbit. It doesn't go down. You have to send the entire lander, which, you know, you could, you could try to combine the orbital habitat with the lander habitat on some of these. Um, because they'll need some place to live when they're on Mars. But most of these missions are not long-term, right? They're like 30 days or less, because you want to get to Mars, do as much science, plant your flag, and then get back in that same uh, window. If you want to stay longer, you have to send a lot more stuff to Mars. 
So it's it's an interesting kind of architecture. Yeah. Bottom line for me is that sci-fi, it, well, it is magic a lot of the time. It does actually play a role in allowing um, not only creatives, but also like the scientists and engineers to imagine how things could be and let them explore with new ideas. And um, like for me, the ITS looks super futuristic and like a spaceship. Um, but as we discussed, it, it does have engineering and like technical merits that make it uh, plausible, right? So I like how sci-fi can let us ignore some of the challenges that we have for now in order to imagine how to solve other problems. Um, but at the same time, we still haven't gone to Mars with people and it's still really, really hard. I agree. The But the point you made that I really like is that the sci-fi is an inspiration for real engineering and it's inspiration that leads to innovation that leads to all these developments we've seen uh, from the space race to now, all these developments in space technology that will eventually get us to Mars. So I think that sci-fi plays a role in that through inspiring and giving new ideas. Sci-fi writers take a lot of liberties, but they aren't idiots. They come up with some really cool ideas, and then it inspires our engineers to go work towards those. With sci-fi, the biggest influence is with naval vessels, and you know, you're sailing the ocean, you're sailing through space, and yeah, spaceship. And if you ever watched Spaceship Battleship Yamoto, that anime, like that's just a battleship flying through space. It's pretty ridiculous, but pretty funny. Um, and so I think a lot of people think that we're, we were going to take to space like we took to the sea uh, in these grand ships to explore the beyond. That's a good stopping point for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating on iTunes or your podcast service of choice. Uh, if you have any feedback for us or topics you would like us to discuss, please email us at specscast at gmail.com. If you want to learn more about RIT space exploration, you can check us out on our website, specs.rit.edu, on Facebook at facebook.com slash ritspecs, or on Twitter at ritspecs. Our music is provided by Nelson Scott, you can check out his music, including his new single, Alternative Admissions, via his website, thenelsonscott.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.